Hello everybody, this is Scott Yates, Director of Communications and Producer Relations for the Washington Grain Commission, here with episode 209 of Weed All About It, or what I'm calling WSU Scientist by Day, Genetic Entrepreneur by Night. Kilvander Gill straddles two worlds. About my conversation with the director of the Feed the Future Climate Resilient Wheat Innovation Lab at WSU and CEO of Gene Shifters, a private research company located near the Pullman Airport. Some might remember Gill as the original holder of the Washington Grain Commission established Vogel Endowed Chair in Wheat Breeding and Genetics from 2002 to 2014. He's also responsible for releasing Mila and Curiosity, a couple of two-gene Clearfield wheat varieties that have performed well in the intermediate and drier areas of eastern Washington. A native of India who received his Ph.D. in 1990 at Kansas State University, Gill came to WSU after a stint at Kansas and the University of Nebraska. I've liked Gill since the first interview I did with him as a reporter for the Capitol Press in the early 2000s, and my affection has never wavered. His goal when initially hired at Washington State was never to breed wheat. He only released Curiosity and Mila because he was asked and had the technical ability to get the two Jing Clearfield varieties out quickly. His goals have always been closer to basic research, that is, figuring out the genetic tools others could use to make varietal progress. In 2013, he and a consortium of other universities and agencies were awarded a $16 million USAID grant to work on developing heat-tolerant wheat varieties. Along the way, he uncovered what he refers to as a gene traffic cop that allows for single genes to be transferred without using genetic engineering. With his gene shifters work, his mission is to address food production constraints to improve crop yield while increasing farm profitability naturally and sustainably. Among other things, the company is involved with using a new mechanism to induce dwarfing in wheat. As most farmers know, USDA wheat breeder Orville Vogel used a dwarf wheat discovered in Japan after World War II to create semi-dwarf varieties which transformed yield expectations when the variety gains was released in 1960. Gill believes that semi-dwarf wheat was an incredible breakthrough, but nonetheless one that created a ceiling beyond which yield could not exceed. For years, his goal has been to develop another technique for dwarfing wheat without this drag on yield by using hormone pathways, and he believes he has done it. I'm not the only one who thinks Gill has the right stuff. Data Heron, a former 12-year member of the Washington Grain Commission and a well-known seedsman throughout the region, thought so much of Gill's abilities that he provided him with seed money to start his business, Gene Shifters. Although Gill is credited as the CEO of that operation, he continues to work in his WSU lab, while a couple of PhDs and other staff do the bulk of work at his company. Not only that, the company is a family affair with his wife, two older daughters, even his younger children pitching in without pay. What can I say? Wow! 
Together, they're quite the effective bunch. But it's not just me who thinks Gil's family is formidable, which is why I'm starting off this podcast with a brief interview with Heron, who retired not long ago from the company he helped establish, Tri-State Seeds. However, he's not completely retired, as he still operates a company called Seed Logic LLC, through which he hopes to market the results of Gill's research and help feed the world. I asked Heron what it was about Gill personally, and his research in particular, that he found appealing enough to help finance his operation. I've always liked Coldventer personally. I've met his wife. I've met his daughters. Uh, they're all very intelligent people. Why I like him is his, his his approach to science is always fresh and innovative. But the thing that really uh, enamored me about him is he's fast he, at the molecular level, which is where he breeds wheat. You can change things quickly. He's one of the few people I've ever met that could hand you a variety of wheat eighteen months after you said I want this with these characteristics. It's not like uh, Amazon where you just go find what you want, but he's got the skill set and the speed breeding techniques to change things quickly, whether it's addressing an issue in the Pacific Northwest or in Africa or just solving a scientific uh, issue like drought, researching drought stress. Uh, he he was, has always impressed me. I've, I've traveled to every major wheat breeding company in the world or country in the world, Slovakia, uh, Germany, Italy, uh, all the guys that have top-notch programs, and uh, he's got to be one of the five best I've ever met in the world. What do you perceive as the advantages of research conducted outside the university? The university does research for one set of reasons, and private companies do research for other reasons. The university is saddled, of course, by some bureaucracy, but the entire mindset of a university science is to do research for the sake of research. Yes, they're solving problems. They're somewhat constrained by fiscal constraints. I've looked at a university employee's handbook. It makes me sick. So outside the university setting, you can do things so much, so much quicker and faster, and you can deliver products to the marketplace much faster than any university project. Well, barring a few. A university scientist's mind is not, for the, a large degree, on the issue of commercialization, getting it to the marketplace, and private sector companies do that very well. One of the issues I have with WSU, and I love the college, my family has 10 degrees from my daughters and my wife and I uh, from that school, and I had a marvelous experience there, and I met some amazing people. The problem is they don't know how to commercialize seed like the private sector does. Uh, anyway, you asked me a question about what private companies do. Uh, they go to market fast. Now, Dana, you call yourself a capitalist, but much of the work that Gill is pursuing is actually aimed at feeding hungry people around the world. Doesn't that make you a philanthropist? That's a good. Qu that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of research that goes on in the area of drought tolerance, uh, adapting cultivars to uh, strange situations increasing protein contents, increasing fiber solubility. Those are all extremely valuable products. But some, somebody, you know, you can develop the science and, uh, and you can write the paper and you can get it published. But when it comes to putting the rubber on the road, it takes a private sector company to do that. And so I guess the two go hand in hand. You say uh, philanthropist on, on one hand, yes, of, 
I, I, I can see your, I can see your point. So are you looking for a profit here? Is that the main thing? I invested, I invested uh, a, a good chunk of money with him. If I never get repaid, it'll be an investment uh, worth my time because I was able to help uh, a fellow capitalist get his feet on the ground. And he ha he has the ability to, to change things in our world. And believe me, there are things that need changed in our world. When I hear statistics like uh, there's 5 million kids under the age of five years old died last year from not enough food, that rips me apart. And uh, if, if we can, if some of this research is applicable in those areas, fan, that's fantastic. Fantastic indeed. It's been a few years since I interviewed Gil, so I started my conversation as I would with any friend by asking what he's been up to lately. He began by differentiating his WSU work and his gene shifters operation. Now I will be talking about two different activities. One as a professor at Washington State University, another one uh, that about a company called Gene Shifters. So I'll address both in this answer. So at uh, Washington State University, uh, I've been focusing on this large project, which was originally at $16 million, four organizations funding it, and that is all for developing heat-tolerant weeds for the world. So that's what the WSU lab has been focusing on. And uh, at the company, uh, this is a little bit about the company. It's my wife's initiative and my kids. Everyone is involved and the focus there is to develop novel technologies with keeping the focus on the developing world, Asia, Africa. But of course, we are developing products for PNW as well, because the focus is to address farmers. So the WSU research has been basically directed toward climate change? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get in the discussion or controversy. Is there a climate change? Is there not climate change? But the, the heat stress is causing significant damage to wheat crop today, including PNW. I mean, if when you look at uh, read papers or books, you would not call PNW as one of the warmer places in the world. But when we did analysis, between spring and winter, because it always bothered me that why our spring weeds yield so low compared to the winter weeds. And then when we did that analysis, it showed the pattern that any year when the temperature is a little bit up, no matter which variety we are talking about, the yield dips. And when it is a, a nicer climate during flowering, then the yields go up. And then we have done that study after study. And so... Our focus there is to improve heat stress tolerance so that we do not see those dips in the yield that we see. Uh, and there are very, very few places in the world where we do not see those dips. So heat stress is a reality today. I mean, a lot of time people think, oh, the winter wheat yeah, yields high. No, the highest yielding wheats in the world are actually spring wheats. There's no reason why we shouldn't see very high yields in springs on our end if we have good heat stress tolerance. So if there's a climate change, uh, if it helps that, why not? But the, the main focus is that we want to address the real problem that we are facing today, that we are losing a lot of yield because of heat stress. 
Kilvander, how did you approach the heat tolerance research? What are you doing there to uh, integrate heat tolerance into these varieties? Uh, so, Scott, as you well know that uh, GMO wheat is not preferred, may not come our way uh, 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 anytime soon, and we are talking 2013 when it was pretty clear there's that's not a good strategy so we decided not to go that route but instead use natural variation already present in wheat and transfer that to improve heat stress tolerance that was a bit of a gamble because we didn't have any data on that but the logic we used was okay any wheat grown near equator where the temperature stays very high year around is a good place to look for wheat so that's exactly what we did we went around the world especially in the warmer places like uh, uh, libya and others many and then collected uh, material from there we didn't do the collection a lot of other people had made the collection so we just acquired that germplasm very systematically and uh, then uh, developed our controlled condition uh, screening protocols because heat stress is can be very different one can be that plant is doing fine and temperature increases just around flowering and that is very deadly heat stress. And in other cases, temperature is high year around. So we developed five different protocols to screen and then tested in the field back and forth. And that's how we came up with the 19 uh, heat stress tolerant lines. And now we know at least four of those are also very high in drought tolerance. So that's, and then that became the base to transfer and develop markers and all. But that's how we get to those uh, highly heat tolerant lines. And then just one example, uh, one protocol we developed, uh, developed, uh, grow wheat at 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, sorry, I don't know the conversion, but it's very, very hard. So most of our currently grown weeds, they die under those circumstances. But we have selected some lines. They look very happy still, even growing at 40 degree. That's the kind of germplasm we have identified and used for that project. Okay, so this is a global project. Are we going to be looking at any varieties released here in the Northwest with improved <laughs> heat stress? There's no funding to do that, but there are all those resources are available. Breeders can use that material or others can, but we uh, ourselves are not doing it because we don't have the funds to do it. Right. So do you consider this more of a germplasm approach that you are going to develop germplasm, which then other breeders can use to develop heat stress tolerant varieties? It is actually both. So we are not only developing germplasm, we are developing markers that they can use to transfer the straight into their breeding pipeline and our partners. So we developed this fast breeding method here that was used to develop a couple of varieties at least. And now the international partners are learning that method and then they are developing varieties on their end. At the end of the project, some varieties will definitely be released, but not in PNW. All right. All right. Now, you have a company called Gene Shifters. I love the name. Tell me about it. Uh, my wife, uh, she is an economist by training. And uh, after 
kids were a little bit grown up. She wanted to do something. They had meetings and a couple of older kids, they wanted to join in. And then uh, we came up with this idea that let's do something for the developing world. And then, uh, so that's what brought the gene shifters into light. Everyone in the family is so far since 2009 when working free for the company have not taken a cent and trying to develop varieties uh, and technologies for the developing world. But absolutely, we are developing products for PNW as well. Tell me how you're involved with Dana Heron in this company. <laughs> Dana, uh, I, I realize you are interviewing him uh, because, you know, there's always confidential. Dana is a great supporter, uh, but he did more than just provide finances for the company. Can't say enough about what Dana did to help us get started. But I would probably let him tell you that more because I don't want to uh, breach uh, the confidentiality between us. So it is up to him. Uh, he can tell more, but he has supported us tremendously uh, to get off the ground. Can you talk specifically about what you're working on at Gene Shifters, specific yes, projects? Right. Absolutely. So that uh, project, that, uh, you, you remember uh, uh, that uh, I talked to you about it, uh, dwarfing genes and then uh, Green Revolution. We were talking about that. We had a project at WSU to develop different ways to reduce plant height. I've been talking all over the world about the contribution of Dr. Vogel in Green Revolution because it really started at Pullman uh, with the initiative of Dr. Vogel who developed uh, the first semi-dwarf variety gains and then new gains that basically revolutionized or tripled the yield around the globe. So how was that done? Uh, there was a mutation in a very important plant hormone called the gibralins or GA and that hormone in those semi-dwarf varieties that were developed, that was present in, in uh, new gains or gains, and then in the 90-plus uh, percent of the world wheat today, those plants have compromised ability to perceive or produce GA hormone. And we all know how important hormones are for living organisms, including humans and plants. And what did we do? We compromised those plants for their ability to perceive GA. And now we know that GA is super critical for plants to deal with abiotic stresses like drought stress, heat stress, salt stress, all sort of stresses. So that project was to find a different way to reduce plant height, but to give back wheat plant, give back the normal GA level. So that's what was the original project. And it was funded by Gate Foundation and National Science Foundation. So once after the project was completed, uh, then uh, Gene Shifters took that approach and uh, developed new ways of uh, develop or dwarfing wheat plant. So right now, I mean, wheat is grown under very, very many, many different environmental conditions, but we have the same dwarfing gene present in all. So Gene Shifter developed different type of dwarfing uh, gene for different plant growth. For example, sometime water is present very deep in the soil. So in that case, dwarfing gene that can respond to uh, lowering water table and then grow roots accordingly 
were developed. And in another case, there just isn't enough water. Uh, and then that's a different type of uh, dwarfing gene. And then for irrigated condition, it's a different type. So about six or seven, depending upon uh, the conditions, new different dwarfing genes were developed uh, by gene shifters. And that's what's really being marketed right now. So that is the the main technology. And there are others I'll tell you more about. Yeah. Now, you just mentioned new dwarfing genes, but isn't it new hormone pathways? Right. There are several different uh, hormones present. So these, all these plants that uh, the new dwarfing genes, they have normal level of GA. Because of that, these plants are capable of dealing with the abiotic stresses like drought and uh, heat and others. So there are other hormones like, say, auxins. So auxin is very important hormone. And then we manipulated that to reduce plant height without compromising plants' ability to deal with uh, any stresses. Have you gotten any results in terms of looking at the yield potential of this new approach? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And then uh, not only that, it is at the stage, it is being mobilized into different wheat backgrounds worldwide. National Science Foundation uh, is very happy with their calling our project success. So, yeah, all that has been shown. You mentioned that Gene Shifters is particularly targeting the developing world. Are we going to see any varieties in the Northwest with this new technology? Absolutely. We are developing one for PNW. We are developing for Midwest. So it will be, yeah, it, we, our goal is to replace or get rid of these old dwarfing genes and replace with the new ones worldwide. We are constantly making more partnerships and looking for more funding so that we can do it quickly. So absolutely, there will be varieties for PNW carrying this new technology. Have you been looking at the quality of the resultant wheat through this approach? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the first thing we look at. And then the quality is, but those two traits are not linked. So there should be no issue. Uh, with the quality but all the tests we have done that's not an issue at all okay Kulvender research is not inexpensive how is your research at Gene Shifter funded Uh, we have several partnerships so as I said earlier it is not the amount of money it is who really helps you in the beginning right and Dana was tremendous help in more than one way including providing funding but now we have several partnerships. Gene Shifter is a different company in a way. We did not go through venture route. That is, let's get some venture capitalists, fund this initiative and all. Because then they dictate terms. Whereas uh, on our end, we wanted to decide uh, what we want to do because all the decisions we make are not necessarily the ones that make more money. It is done by what has the most impact. We make what we call strategic partnership, like look for people who are interested in this type of technology. We say, okay, let's co-develop and co-market products. So, for example, we have a partnership with one organization uh, that has presence in 27 countries in Asia and Africa, and they have uh, exclusive rights to the products developed by gene shifters in those countries. So, And then, of course, they are funding uh, part of the project. There are grants, National Science Foundation, when they're very supportive, 
USAID has been supportive. Uh, we have partnerships locally with the co-op. As I said, that uh, I'll avoid naming names just for the, just maintaining confidentiality uh, because I have not checked with those folks if I can reveal their names. But we have good partnerships right in the PSP and W to co-develop and co-market products. Okay. Here's a philosophical question for you, Kulvander. When you have an idea, um, is it an aha moment, you know, sort of an epiphany or followed by f- trying to figure out how to make it work? Or is it simply following the science down a path to find an answer? It's actually a little bit of a both, but I would say that it is a lot of discussions in our household that all uh, dinner conversations are around new ideas and science, right? Like, for example, give you an example. When COVID hit, my uh, number two daughter, she said, what can we do about COVID? And then long story short, she came up with an idea and submitted grant proposal and it, uh, she is following up on that path. So oftentimes it is we say, and the other uh, example is that uh, where during one of those conversations, uh, we talked about that number one problem right now in the developing world is protein deficiency. And uh, stunting is kind of really uh, bad in some parts and then brain development is compromised. That was an idea that we kept thinking and talking and thinking and talking. And at the end, we came up with a technology called amino balance. And that is targeted to fix protein deficiency around the developing world. Uh, And that is really, I mean, a very novel technology, although still we are not at the stage where we can publicize it, uh, but very exciting development there uh, where we are changing the way protein is and to address protein deficiency. Uh, Kulvander, you released a couple of well-received varieties, Mila and Curiosity, What's the difference between being a plant breeder and what you're doing now? <laughs> well, as you well know, when I came to WSU, I didn't come as plant breeder. And I don't still call myself plant breeder. I don't have any field equipment. I don't have access to much equipment. But that was done because WSU wanted me to do it uh, because of the clear field uh, technology. And in the process, we end up developing this very beautiful novel technology that where we can use to transfer a gene into a background very quickly. And then in the process, release the uh, varieties as a sort of byproduct of that effort. The difference is that a breeding program has much bigger responsibility. Uh, they need to keep developing new varieties and keep looking for new combinations. Whereas what I do is that if once a variety is there, if it is lacking one or two things, we can quickly add those uh, traits into that variety and uh, uh, make it better. My main focus is really to develop uh, novel technologies and generate novel information that will help farmers in the medium to long range rather than immediately. Whereas breeders are boots on the ground uh, quickly uh, getting the varieties that farmers need today. So that's, in my opinion, is the difference. How big is your staff at Gene Shifters? <laughs> it is still pretty small, uh, uh, Scott, that uh, about it uh, ranges from, say, maybe 8 to maybe 13 people, depending upon the time of the year. And uh, But we have two PhDs uh, 
one is the sort of the research director or the lead person and other one is research scientist so they are providing direction the entire family is involved uh, everyone does whatever they can to to help uh, so that that's kind of and then we have some off station operation in other countries that really helps because uh, there things can be done a little bit cheaper and also that's the focus area i still call it pretty small uh, but uh, i say pretty tidy group How do you divide the time you spend between your WSU research and your gene shifter research? <laughs> As I said that uh, the day-to-day operation of gene shifters is handled by my family and kids they they are the one who are spending most time there. My role is to do whatever I'm told or whatever I can help especially my job is more of an advisory role that uh, i help with the with the research ideas sometime even with their proposals i mean i do whatever is needed to be done there but i do it on my own time so 8 to 5 that is wsu time but there's plenty other time and uh, i don't do anything other than work and uh, maybe a little bit exercise so there's plenty time for me to help it said there are two kinds of people those who work to live and those who live to work to me it sounds as if gill is combining both of those approaches by the way that 40 degrees centigrade gill referred to that's 104 degrees fahrenheit certainly eastern washington's 2020 record spring wheat yield showed how well varieties perform when it doesn't get warm but that kind of cool weather rarely happens Imagine if Gill's heat-tolerant spring wheat varieties could bring yields in the region closer to winter wheat. Not to mention what his new dwarfing method could mean in farmers' cropping systems. I hope you enjoyed episode 209, or what I entitled "WSU Scientist by Day, Genetic Entrepreneur by Night." Kilvender Gill straddles two worlds. Please join me here again next week for the final episode of. Wheat all about it. We're all children of a special treat, a miracle of nature that we just call wheat. A crop that's in the Bible, a crop that's in our bread, a crop that's filled our bellies and held us to the dead. Through a history of starvation and times of want and woe, wheat has been our savior, our crop, our food, our dough. There's lots of problems when we have enough to eat, but there's only one dilemma when it's not enough wheat. We feed you.